Good morning. Good to see you today. You know, uh, Romans is a, just a wonderful book in the Bible. I think we all know that. And uh, as we studied again this year, we remember why we appreciate Romans so much. Obviously, it contains the big message and aspects of the message that all of our uh, non-Christian friends need to hear. But it also explains to us what we need to hear if we're believers in Jesus Christ. We need to know how our salvation works, why it was accomplished in the first place, and what the prospects are for us in the future. And Romans lays that out in a marvelous way. We've already learned from Romans, chapters 1, 2, and, and first half of 3, that all humanity has fallen from the glory of God. All of us have lost our native righteousness. Therefore, none of us, whether you're religious or non-religious, deserve to go to heaven or can go to heaven on our own strength. None of us is going to perform our way out of it. None of us is going to turn over a new leaf and thereby find acceptance with God. We learned that in the first two and a half chapters. That's a very important lesson to learn. That's the foundation of everything in our salvation, to realize there is no way by human effort or morality to achieve a standing with God that gives us admittance into eternal life. Then what we found in chapter 3, the latter half of chapter 3, was God has revealed a righteousness that's not based on our performance. It's a righteousness that comes down to us as a gift from heaven. It's a righteousness that's not through our working our morality out in this life. It's a righteousness that comes simply by trust, simply by trusting God. He gives us his righteousness as a gift, and we're clothed with that righteousness from the moment that we believe in him. And that righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ we found in chapter 5. It's his righteousness imputed to us just as surely as our sin was imputed or reckoned to him. And we have his righteousness in toto, the moment that we believe. That's the reason that we know in believing in Jesus Christ, we could die at any moment. We don't have to do any heroic measures. We don't have to make any restitutional uh, behaviors in order to be qualified for heaven. The moment we believe because we receive all of Christ's righteousness. Now in chapter 4, we also learned that this gospel was in seed form in the Old Testament, that Abraham was saved the same way that New Testament believers are saved. He didn't have a different way of salvation. There weren't different standards in the Old Testament. The standard was the same. Abraham, says Paul, was justified through faith. So chapter 4 teaches us that this was the faith of David and of Abraham. Then we got to chapter 5 and 6, And we saw that there's something divine and mysterious going on in this salvation. That we are united to Christ. We're baptized into him. And thereby we die the same death he did. We die to the law. We die to our sin. And we are alive to his resurrection. Just because he's raised, we too are raised to eternal life. We found that we have a new nature. So if we ever wondered... What keeps men from saying, hey, since I know I'm forgiven and I know I'm going to heaven, I'm just going to raise hell here on earth. What keeps men from doing that? Because we don't want to do that anymore. We we not only have been justified forensically, legally, 
We not only have a new status, but our hearts have been changed. Our nature has been changed at the same time. So we are justified by faith. We're also regenerated or born again so that we, our desires are changed. We have new hearts. So we have a new record, but we also have a new heart at the same time. So there's no such thing as having a new record that's secure and not having a new heart. That's impossible. It doesn't happen. So we saw that what sounds like a logical objection is actually an illogical objection because it, it assumes that someone could have a new legal status and not have a new heart and desire righteousness. And Paul says that uh, that's not the way it works. You are baptized into Christ. It's not just a legal reality. It's an organic. It's a, it's a, a new nature. It's a, it's a spiritual reality. So we not only have a new nature, but then we saw last week, we have a new master. So God gives us a new nature. We voluntarily bring ourselves under a new master. No longer is our master the devil and sin and death. Our master now is the Lord Jesus Christ in life. And we bear fruit for life because we are under him voluntarily. By the power of the Holy Spirit, because we've been brought into union with him, we now consciously put ourselves under his lordship, under his masterly care. So we have a new nature and a new master. Now we come to chapter 7. Paul is going to continue the argument that he's been in in chapter 6 because he says now, you remember, you're no longer under law, but you're under grace. He shows us that we've been transferred by virtue of regeneration, by virtue of really becoming a believer. You're transferred from one kingdom, an evil kingdom, where you are bound to do evil, and you were being oppressed and didn't know it. You got transferred out of that kingdom of slavery into the kingdom of light and life, into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both are powerful kingdoms. And in both cases, you're a slave. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. Uh, but you've been transferred. Now, Paul's going to continue that argument. But you know Romans 7, most of you, and you know that Paul's going to take up another issue. So if I've got this new nature and a new master, so why am I struggling so much in my Christian life? Why is it I just keep on sinning? The very thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. I'm screwed up. I, don't, I just can't get a hold of myself. And so Romans 7 takes up that issue. I think we're going to see that uh, oftentimes uh, Christian men don't quite get the heart of the argument Paul's making there. Uh, and of course, we all think that when we read it, we're getting the heart of it. But I'll give you the, you know, different scholars disagree. But I think there's a clue here I'm going to show you in Romans 7 that I think will open up the meaning of this chapter so that its full usefulness uh, will be evident to all of us. Now, let's, let's read through Romans 7 then. That's the argument. That's the context that we're in in the argument. And when you're reading Romans, you have to know where you are in the argument. Otherwise, uh, what's being said won't make perfect sense. So you have to know what is Paul arguing, where is in his argument. That's the reason it's always helpful to rehearse where have you been so that we know right where we are now in this argument. So Paul picks up then, and he, and he says, you'll notice in the first verse, do you not know? Now, he said that several times. So in a sense, he's chiding them and saying, brothers, I'm reminding you of stuff that you should have known. So there's a, there's a critique here that they're living life in a certain way. 
that reflects that they don't really know the gospel as well as they should. Isn't that a definition of ourselves? We're constantly trying to know more of the gospel so that our lives reflect more of the gospel. So let's read on verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit." and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the law came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not, for I do, not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, 
I serve the law of sin. Okay, let's look first of all at these first six verses and see that Paul is teaching us we are released from the old way of the law. Or he puts it more literally, we're released from the law. We're free from the law. What does he mean by that? Well, we hope to explain it today. But he begins with A, an analogy. Marriage after death of spouse. So he's going to explain what he means by analogy. And aren't we thankful? Aren't you thankful that when Jesus describes righteousness in the Gospels, he tells us stories? Aren't you thankful that when he tells us who our neighbor is that we're supposed to love. He gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan. Nothing could be more vivid than the parable of the Good Samaritan about who our neighbor really is. Our neighbor is the Syrian refugee in our own day. That's what he's saying. He, he would tell the story, say, there once was a Syrian refugee and there was a Christian about ready to die and all of his brothers walked by him because he was messy and dirty. They didn't want to mess with him. It was the Syrian refugee who took him and cared for him. And he says, now you go do, do likewise. You say, who you're telling me to be like a Syrian refugee? <laughs> That's exactly what he did to the Jews when he told the story about the hated Samaritan who was the righteous person instead of the Jewish Levite and the Jewish priest. <laughs> so don't you love stories? Uh, they arrest us. They bring light. And here's what Paul's doing. He's giving us an analogy. And he says, now everybody knows especially you Jewish people who have been trained in the law, you know that a woman is only obligated to you as long as you live. If you try to guilt manipulate her and and tell her that she should never marry anybody else, that's contrary to the law. Because as soon as you die, goodbye, she's free from you. And she's an eligible single widow, eligible for for remarriage. Everybody knows the law only binds her to her husband as long as the husband lives. So death breaks the obligation. That's the analogy he's using. And in this analogy, we find, find some interesting things uh, because, first of all, we see that he's going to use marriage as the analogy. It's a wonderful analogy for us in Jesus Christ. But then look at verses 4 through 6, and here he gives the principle. And the principle is death to the old way. Death to the old way. Now, you notice I am already stressing the old way instead of the law. I'm going to explain why that is in just a moment. But here he says, just as there was a death in the case of the woman becoming a widow and now being able to marry someone else, there's also been a death in your spiritual experience. You died to the law in this sense. The law no longer has a grip on you through guilt and condemnation. Let me say that again. The law no longer has a grip on you through guilt and condemnation. How often is it that we men, not only with wives and children and uh, workplace relationships, use guilt manipulation to get our will accomplished? Especially if we suspect someone's open to it. If they can be manipulated, we are likely to manipulate them. And the law does that to you. Through the guilt that you know you have with respect to the perfect law of God, you can constantly be guilt manipulated into doing this, that, or the other. Guilt manipulation, just like fear and anger, works in the short term. 
but it doesn't work very well in the long term. And, of course, we'll see it in politics. So much of the politics right now is anger-driven, and that explains the insanity of what you see during some of these debates. I mean, insanity. I think we've lost our minds. But what it is, it's the short-term anger. People are angry about something, and they're expressing it. And you can see, as, uh, as I've been told by our good psychology professor, Bill, over here, that when you're angry, you can't think straight. And studies have proven that. And you can see the populace can't think straight when they're angry. You can't think straight when you're guilt-manipulated. Paul is saying there's been a death in your experience. You've died to that whole system of condemnation and guilt manipulation. You've died to that. And you've died to it so that you could be remarried. You were married to it. That was the way you used to do your religion. He's especially talking to Jews here. He said in your Judaism, that's the way you did it. That if you do this, God will punish you. If you do this, God will bless you. You always, you know, you never know exactly how God's going to treat you. You're always worried and he's, you're being guilt manipulated in your religion. That's the way you used to do your religion. And there are some Christian men who still do their religion that way. And Paul is going, stop it. You died to that system of guilt, condemnation, and guilt manipulation. And now you're alive to something else. You're married now to Christ. So you have not only a new nature, and this is how he's picking up on chapter 6. You not only have a new nature, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And you not only have a new master, chapter 6, 15 through 23. You now have a new marriage. And the marriage is with Jesus Christ. Doesn't that beautifully display what the Christian life is supposed to be? We're in love. We're bound to him through a loving covenant. And this helps us understand how the Christian psyche is supposed to work. You know, if, if I just gave you the rules of Ephesians 5, forget your wife or any women at all, I just gave you the rules of Ephesians 5, that you're supposed to die for other people, you're supposed to strive to serve them and do their will all the time, you're supposed to defer to them, you're supposed to be their subjects. I give you these rules, and then I say, go do them. You're going, oh, gosh, really? But if I give you this beautiful woman who just thinks you're Prince Charming, you little idiot, she, she convinces you you're Prince Charming. Imagine that. So here's this beautiful, charming woman who convinces you that you're the answer to everything in the universe. And then I give you Ephesians 5. You say, thank you, thank you. That's exactly what I want to do. Now, that's the way it is when you get converted. You, you no longer look at this book as just a burdensome set of precepts and laws. You're given Him. And the book shows you how to love Him. I mean, it'd be one thing if, if every time you see me, I say, I just love the Bible. And you say, yeah, you know, isn't Jesus wonderful? But the Bible, it's terrific. I just, every, I wake up in the morning, I just, I just, I'm just passionate about the Bible. And you say, yeah, isn't Jesus wonderful? I said, no, but really, it's just the things you can learn here. And you, you see the problem. I, I'm, I'm stuck to the, the word, the written word, but the word incarnate, I seem to have no relationship with. 
Paul is saying that's the problem. You've got to realize you've died to a system of life that is simply based on a written document that you're trying to put into effect apart from a marital loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now that's the beginning. So he's saying there's a new marriage. You've got a new relationship to the law. You've been released from the law in the old sense of the way you are approaching it. And now you're going to come back to the law. Now I tell you how much I love Jesus Christ and I delight myself in his word. So I love the Bible. I actually love it more because it's the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's the word incarnate speaking to me through the word written. Now the Bible is properly appropriated in my life. And Paul is saying, you, you believers, you Romans who are professing faith in Jesus Christ, you're trying to live the Christian life by just simply effectuating or implementing the word without understanding the depth of this relationship you have with Jesus Christ. That's the problem of moralism. So moralism simply tries to affect written principles of law and put them into practice by human strength apart from considering the loving marriage that you have and apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see. Now, if you'll look at the last verse in this section, verse 6, here is the key to understanding, in my opinion, chapter 7. Verse 6 is the key. Verse 6 wraps up this analogy of marriage and it introduces the long section that sometimes leaves us a little confused. This is the header verse. And Paul says, uh, but now, and don't you love the word, but now again, we had, but now when he talked about our legal justification, you were hopeless, you couldn't possibly have had righteous standing before God, but now a righteousness has been revealed. And then he says, you know, uh, in, in chapter 6, but now you have a new nature and a new master. And here again, but now. And what is the but now that uh, he refers to in this case? We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. All right? So that's what we've been released from the law and its captivity through guilt, manipulation, and condemnation. Now we're going to see we come back to the law in a moment. So we've only been released from it in a certain sense. Don't overread. You have to read everything in its context. And in this context, Paul says the law is good. You read that. We're going to come back to that in a moment. So we still, the law is still, the, the Bible and the law is still a big part of our lives. It's just that it's not isolated now uh, from our marriage with Christ and really our relationship with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're released from the law in its inappropriate captivity through guilt manipulation and condemnation. As he says in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation. So we're released from the condemnation of the law so that, look at verse 6b, we may serve, how? In the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 6 is the key. He shows you the primary contrast he's trying to explain for the next chapter I'm talking about the the latter part of 7 and the first part of 8. So the latter part of 7 and the first part of 8 go together. It's all about the old way versus the new way. 
Now, let me tell you why this is so crucial. Most men, when they look at Romans 7, enter into the discussion that's in the footnotes of your ESV study Bible, which is this big question. Is Paul, in Romans 7, talking about a regenerate person who's struggling, or is he talking about the unregenerate person? And there are arguments for both sides that you can see in the footnotes. And there are most, most evangelical scholars will say, no, he's talking about a believer. That's the real, and we would say, that brings us great encouragement because I'm a believer and I sure know I struggle. And here the Apostle Paul is saying that he struggles and that encourages us. That's the typical way in which we look at Romans 7. We say, isn't that chapter encouraging that even the greatest of them all, the Apostle Paul, had struggles with sin just like I do. And we derive comfort from that. I want to suggest to you, that's not the main point he's making. There is comfort, but it's not quite what most people think. On the other hand, there are some who hold to the victorious life and the spirit-filled life, and they're saying, no, Paul is talking about his experience prior to conversion. And when you get to Romans 8 and the life of the spirit, now he's talking about conversion. Well, I I frankly don't agree with that because you have so many present tenses in here. Paul seems to be talking about the here and the now. But let me say that they're both partially right and both views are partially wrong. And the reason is they haven't taken verse 6 into account. Paul is not talking either about regenerate or unregenerate life. He's talking about a way. The whole point is there's a way here. A way of what? a way of sanctification or a way of living a holy life. So if we've been given a new nature, we're under a new master, now we expect to live a new life. So there's only one way to do this. And he's talking to a bunch of people whose default position in trying to lead the Christian life is the old way. So they've got Christ, they understand, oh, this is new, I didn't learn this in Judaism. I'm very thankful to get this message about the incarnate Messiah who died on Calvary's cross. Now I understand Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and some other things. I can see now how my Jewish faith was leading to this, but I just didn't get it until I got the preaching of the gospel. And now everything is centered around Christ. But then in order to live the Christian life, they still use the same way of sanctification that they were using before they met Christ, which is a moralistic way of trying to carry out the law of God. It's like uh, painting by numbers. Remember some of you as a kid, maybe some of you now, yeah, painting by the numbers. (laughs) Sweetie, look at this beautiful painting I just did. Oh, really? You painted that? Yeah, I painted it by the numbers. You know how it goes. You get a you get somebody draws the picture out for you and, and they, they put, you know, different little portions in there with numbers in it and it says number 14 and you look on your palette there and you got, oh, 14, that's a shade of green. You get a little 14 and put it in there. And there's, here's number seven over here and you get seven, that's kind of a pink color. You get seven, put it there. Hey, by the time you finish, man, you're a great artist. Look at that. Of course, nobody with any art skill would think you're a great artist, but, you know, you can put that up and, man, you did a painting. You painted by the numbers and you just go, 14, 7. Now, what Paul is saying, that's the old way of sanctification. Oh, it says here, don't lust. Okay, uh, let's do that one. It says here, uh, don't uh, disobey your parents. Okay, I'll try to do that today. 
and you're just painting by the numbers. You, you see what it's supposed to be. It's all right there in the written code. It's all right there in the law. You got them all. You got the ten, big 10 and then you got the 613 coming out of the big 10 and you can summarize the big 10 with the big two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, your neighbor yourself. So you, you got it in your head now. Now just, just do it. And, and, you, and, and then you're told, you know, you're Christians. Uh, you've been born again. So here's the law. You've been born again. Here's the law. Now just go do it. I mean, you're in love, aren't you? you have, you're married to Christ, so go do it. That's the old way. You say, I thought that was the new way. No, that's the old way. That's Paul's point. And he's going to show us the frustrations of the old way. So he's neither talking about himself before conversion or after conversion. He's talking about himself trying to live the Christian life in the old way. So it's hypothetical. Let me give you, let me give you another example. I might explain this. A few of you here are old enough to remember Tarzan and Jane. <laughs> remember as kids, <laughs> we get up on Saturday, and one of the shows you're going to see is Tarzan and Jane. Tarzan, king of the jungle. And so uh, one thing that gave me nightmares as a little kid was the quicksand. You know, the, the, the big dreaded problem in Tarzan was if anybody got in the quicksand. And you'd see them there, they'd, you know, they'd be sinking, they'd be up to here, and then two minutes later they'd be up to here, and then right up to here, and they'd be right under their nose. And where is Tarzan? Save this person. He's in, in the quicksand. And you know the advice you get when you get into quicksand? The advice is don't struggle. The more you move and try to get out of there, the quicker you're going down. So just use the voice you've got to yell out, Tarzan! <laughs> or another analogy would be if somebody throws you a rope. You know, the rope is sitting right there next to you on top of the quicksand, but you're trying to swim your way out of it. You're going down. Now that's the point Paul's trying to make. Use the voice you've got. Jesus! Get some help. And just like Tarzan was, of course, the answer, he'd swoop down on his little grapevine or whatever it was, which I used to smoke as a little older kid. Uh, and he swooped down on his vine, and he'd pick that person up out of the quicksand and rescue him. That was the only answer for them. And Paul is saying this. There's a new way that you have to have even if you're born again. You, when you... When you came to Christ, Paul explains to us, Romans 3 and Romans 5 especially, that you get a new record, right? This perfect record of righteousness is imputed to you. And we call it an alien righteousness. So the righteousness that justifies you is not your intrinsic righteousness. There is an intrinsic righteousness. It's called sanctification. It's gradual. It's imperfect. It's progressive, it's real, it's required. But it's not sufficient to justify you because it's always mixed with evil in this life. It has to be there. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It has to be there, but it's not sufficient to justify you. You have to have a perfect righteousness, therefore, it has to be alien. And that alien righteousness is what Jesus Christ gives you. So we all know we're justified by an alien imputed righteousness. Here's Paul's point in Romans 7 and 8. You have to be sanctified also by an alien power. Your intrinsic born-again 
Christian power is not adequate. That's his point here. If you depend upon yourself, even your regenerate self, to fight this battle, you're using the same methodology as that old Judaism taught, which is before God, you're on your own account. It's your own morality. It's your own righteousness. It's your own holiness that you've got to depend upon to get the job done to live the Christian life. Paul's saying that's not going to work. You're going to, it's like quicksand. The harder you struggle, even with your... You take Billy Graham. The harder he tries in his Billy Grahamness to keep the law of God, the quicker he sinks. You've got to cry out. Take the rope. Let... Jesus Christ swooped down and picked you up and carry you along. That's the new way of the Spirit. So you died to living the Christian life on your own moral strength. You not only died to the condemnation of the law, you died to the captivity of the law's ways that had a hold over you, and you thought that your obligation was to abide by the law by your own strength. You, that's, you've died to that. You've given up on that. And you're crying out for help all the time. All the time. Moment by moment. You never cease. You're always crying out for help. Because what you're trying to do is impossible. Do you realize what you're trying to do? It's outrageous. You're trying to live like Jesus Christ. That's outrageously difficult. It's impossible. And what Paul is saying, you've got to realize the huge enterprise that you've just entered. You're trying to make a billion dollars in one year with one penny capital. Let's be honest. You're trying to make a billion dollars a year with no capital. That's what he's saying. The old way is to treat yourself as though you have capital, as though you can do this. I've come to Jesus. I can do this now. The new way is the life of the Spirit. Now, in the latter half of Romans 7, you'll not see the Spirit anywhere. And that's the problem. In Romans 18, you'll see the Spirit everywhere. And that's the solution. It's the way of the Spirit. And we'll talk after Christmas how you do that. How do you appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit in living the Christian life? I'll tell you what, I'm desperate for this because uh, I became a Christian at 25. Uh, I began to teach Sunday school. I became an officer in the church. And then I went to seminary. Now I've been a pastor for 35 years. And I look at my life and I say, it stinks. I mean, I think I'm making a little progress, but it's just, it's just horrific the things that I think, the things that I say, and some of the things that I do. And I've been a pastor for this long. and studied the Bible for this long. And I, I know that I love Jesus, but I look at this and say, this is ridiculous. And, and I'm desperate for this message because I, I'm through with this. You know, this thinking, this illusion that as a regenerate man, I should be able to abide by the law perfectly. I just, I can't do this. I have to call out Tarzan. So here we go. Let's dig in and see how Paul describes now the frustration of trying to do it the old way. If you, as a Christian man, 
So I do agree with the scholars who say, this is a Christian man. But he's speaking hypothetically. He's speaking as a Christian man who's trying to do it the old way. That's what people miss when they interpret Romans 7. Yeah, it's a Christian man, but he's trying to do it the old way. It's hypothetical. So let's look at it. Beginning with Roman numeral 2 here now, verses 7 following, we enter into this hypothetical approach that Paul's describing in the quicksand, and he's sinking. Now, we know Paul's not sinking. We know Paul's abounding. Well, the reason is he's not doing it this way. He's doing it the new way. But he's showing you what, what it would be or what it is when he falls back into the old way of thinking. So he says in, in chapter 7, uh, ver, uh, verses 7 through 13, the law is good. This is the first thing he wants to establish. He wants to say, look, when we talk about being released from the law, we're not saying that the, the law is either bad nor useless. And you may say, well, you know, he's got a pretty strong Jewish audience there, so he's just trying to palliate them a little bit. No, I mean, that may be partially true for the sake of his argument. He's trying to say to the Jewish folks, I'm not trashing the law. I know you love the law. I'm not trashing it. But he's doing more than that. He's going to show us how with the new way, you can't do it without the law. You're released from the condemnation of the law, but you're not released from the help of the law. So we're not, when he says he's released from the law, you have to look at the context. He's talking about captivity to this guilt-manipulative way of morality and captivity to condemnation. You're released from that. But you're not released from the blessings and the help that the law can give you. So Paul starts with, the law is good. Let me, let me drive that stake in the ground. Be sure you understand what I'm saying. The problem is not the law. The law is good. He starts off by saying, first of all, in verse 7, the law defines sin. The law shows us what sin is. He says, is the law sin? Heck no, we say. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And he refers here to the issue of covetousness. Isn't that interesting? Of the Ten Commandments that he's going to use to illustrate, he picks the tenth one. Why? I think it's this. The Tenth Commandment gives you the first suggestion that all Ten Commandments apply not to just external behavior, but to your heart. Covetousness has to do with your, your heart, your desires, not your activity. Stealing is the activity. Covetousness is the heart. And Paul is saying, I think he's showing you here, he's saying, I wouldn't even have known that sins of the heart were sins if the law were not given. Now, you remember this was a key issue with Jesus Christ. When you look at his preaching ministry, where did he start? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is, as we saw a few years ago, is the first sermon in Matthew. It appears to be one of the first sermons Jesus gave. And when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, where does Jesus start? It starts with benedictions, blessed are the poor in spirit and so on. But then he goes right into the law. And he shows you that we must be law keepers. And then he shows you what the law really is. He said... You've heard it said that if you don't kill somebody, you've abided by the Sixth Commandment. Well, I'm telling you that if you hate somebody, you've violated the Sixth Commandment. So Jesus says the Pharisees have taught you this way, that it's all external. If you just 
keep your hands off people's necks and don't drive a knife in their back, you've kept the law. I'm telling you, it's much more, it's much deeper, much more spiritual than that. It has to do with whether you wish him not to be in existence. You just murdered him if you hate him. So, and Jesus takes all the, he says the same thing about sex. You know, it's one, we're not supposed to commit adultery. You thought that if you didn't physically go to bed someone, with someone and commit adultery, that you didn't violate uh, the seventh commandment. He says, no, no, no. <laughs> if you lust after a woman. You go, oh, shoot. Yeah. I remember talking to a Jewish friend who's fairly serious about his Judaism. And he said, you know, the problem with you Christians is you've got this impossible ethic. He said, in Judaism... You know, we know we're not supposed to commit adultery, but you can window shop all you want to, man. He said, but you've got this ethic that's just completely impossible. He said, that's the reason I despise your religion. It's just impossible. And, of course, I had the opportunity to say, well, you know why that is, first of all, because that's the way we were made. God made us to have pure motives. So that's part of our falling away from the way that we were made. And secondly, there's an answer for it. It leads us right to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you realize that you're not keeping the law, you look outside of yourself and find a Savior. And so for us, that's propedeutic to finding the Savior. We, we've got to know that, we, that our attitudes are under the condemnation of the law so that we'll flee to Christ as Savior. So Paul is saying the law is good because it, it, it defines my idols shows me my sin, and of course then is going to make me aware of how bad I really am. Secondly, uh, verse 8, the law actually arouses sin. You say, what good is this? Well, once again, it just makes it more evident to you. Paul makes an interesting statement. He says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. But with the law, sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So he says, if I didn't know what the law was, it just lies fallow. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, but I don't know it. And it's not, my sin's not aroused. Let me, here's an example. Do you remember in the seventh grade when uh, you know, they separated the boys and the girls and they gave you the sex talk? You were fine up until then. <laughs> But as soon as they start putting pictures up on the board, man, you want to go find out what the real thing looks like. You get more and more interested in it. You remember? So the, when, they, when they explained to you, especially if it was in Sunday school, you probably wouldn't because churches didn't do that much back in my day. But, but in church, when they explained to you the morality of, se- of sex and how it's all set up, you get not only more curious, your desire is aroused. Same thing with sin. Paul says, that's what the law does. He says, not the law's fault. It's not your sex teacher's fault. It's your blooming fault because of your wicked head. And to you, the whole thing becomes more alluring because it's naughty. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can, I can tell. Nobody's going, no, nah, like this. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So Paul's saying the law arouses all of that stuff. And thirdly, in verses 9 through 11, the law condemns sin. So the law is good because it defines sin. It actually arouses it so that we know it's there. And the law condemns it. I was once, he says, this is interesting, alive apart from the law. What he means there in verse 9 is, 
that my perception was. I felt I was alive before the law came. So before I really understood the law, now he's talking hypothetically. You know, in my my old way of doing things, if I wasn't aware of what the law taught, I felt alive. I didn't feel condemned. But now the law comes and it deceives me and it kills me. So he's saying the law is good because it kills me. It defines my sin, it arouses it and brings it up to the surface, get the dross up to the top, and then it kills it. And I realize how hopeless this life is trying to live that way. He said, that's what the law does. Now, in uh, Christian theology, we normally speak of three uses of the law, the big categories. The first use, historically, is called the civic or civil use of the law. And that means the law is useful for everybody, regenerate and unregenerate alike. There is a common sense that thou shalt not kill. There's a common sense thou shalt not commit adultery. The law is helpful in applying to general society. So, for example, when you're voting for a candidate, the candidate is going to be more attractive to you if he believes in protecting the life of human beings. Duh. A candidate's going to be more attractive to you if he believes in sexual morality. Duh. A candidate's going to be more attractive to you if he believes in racial justice. Duh. So it's, there's a civil use of the law. The law of God helps us to understand how to promote the interest of the broader society. Now, when I speak in civic life as a politician, if I were a politician, I don't quote chapters and verses because what I'm then saying to people who are non-Christians, the only way you can understand my viewpoint is by being a Christian. And as a civic leader, that's probably not the right way to go about things. So I explain things in terms of what the Roman Catholics nicely call natural law that is accessible. I mean, one, there are many, many things I appreciate about the Roman Catholic uh, tradition, and one of them is the Thomistic view of natural law, and it gives us a way in which we can all talk about what's obvious even from nature, and we can build a certain morality from observing nature itself. And therefore, I can appeal to my Muslim friends, my Hindu friends, my secular friends, as well as my evangelical Christian friends. And we can all agree that it's good to protect life because of natural law. We can all agree. So there's a civic use of the law, even though we don't cite chapter and verse, we're motivated by our knowledge of what's true and what's good and what's beautiful from the Bible. So there is a civil, civic use of the law. Secondly, there's what we call the pedagogical view of the law, a use of the law. It's a, the pedagogy just means teaching. So the law teaches or leads us to Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's been describing here primarily. He's saying the law reveals my sin, it defines it, it arouses it, and it kills it. So now I'm desperate for a savior. So the law, the second use of the law is the one that normally evangelicals would focus upon. Protestants historically have focused upon the second use of the law, uh, that it leads us to Jesus Christ and that's his primary purpose. But Paul is going to argue for the third use of the law, which is what we call the normative use of the law. That's the use of the law for the Christian. And we forget this because 
there are texts like the ones we've been reading where Paul says we're released from the law. You say, oh, good, through with the law. Now it's just all about love. Well, your wife wouldn't appreciate it if you say, hey, Ephesians 5, I forget all that. It's just whether I love you or not. Well, the irony of that is if you do love her, you'll do Ephesians 5. And you'll also do the sixth commandment, not to commit adultery. So law and love actually go together in the third use of the law. In the second use of the law, the law's job is finished when it gets you to Christ. But the third use of the law is the friendly help that the law gives you in carrying out your loving relationship with your Savior. So Paul is saying the law is good. And I've given you a Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, paragraph 6 and 7 to help you out there. Those are the paragraphs that have to do with the third use of the law. You'll find debates now in Reformed and Presbyterian circles about third use of the law. We don't have time for all that, but I think I'm giving you what Paul's view is, that there is that third use of the law, the law for the believer that's useful for him in everyday life. Now, lastly then, verses 14 through 25, the old way of the law doesn't work. Paul is showing us here why it doesn't work. If I try to swim out of quicksand, it's not going to work. Why? First of all, the problem of uh, our internal warfare leads to frustration. The harder you try, the worse it gets. That's the problem. And he defines here, first of all, in verse 14, the law versus flesh. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. Now, of course, who is I here? And this I... I'm not talking about E-Y-E, but I. keeps moving around a little bit. He's using I in different ways, just like he uses law in different ways sometimes. But he's saying, the law is deeply spiritual, but I'm a human being and I have flesh and, it, and I, don't, I can't just take my flesh and use my fleshly powers to implement a spiritual law. Secondly, verses 15 through 16, he talks about the I versus the I. There are two I's. On one hand, I do not understand, well, he says, I do not understand my own actions. For on the one hand, I do not do some things. But on the other hand, I want to do them. So I got two eyes. I got the eye who wants to do it. And I got the eye who can't do it. So which eye is he? The, the regenerate eye wants to follow Christ. The fleshly eye can't do it. You see, he's talking like one who is trying to swim out of quicksand. He's talking like one who's using the old way that I am my regenerate self. Now I'm going to do it. The problem is you still got flesh. So 17 through 20 shows us number three, I versus indwelling sin. And that is the flesh. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So the regenerate I is not doing all this crazy stuff. It's the flesh in me, but that is I, I am fleshly. You see the confusion? The the deal is that when you come to Christ, you do get a new nature. But you do not completely kill off the flesh, which is where indwelling sin still resides. Now move with me to this next analogy, chapter of verses 21 through 23, when he says he compares inner being with members. This is encouraging. He's saying in my inner being... I delight in the law of God. Now, his inner being is like his headquarters. If you're in battle, 
You've got your headquarters. And he's saying, in headquarters, I delight in the law of God. But I got a problem out here with some of my, my captains, the members of my body. And it's not just corporal body, although that's the nice analogy. It's the aspects of my being. Not headquarters. I've given my heart to Jesus. But I've got indwelling sin in these extremities. And they don't always cooperate. You notice that? You grab something you shouldn't grab. Say something you shouldn't say. Even though headquarters is still given to Christ. So he's showing, it's almost schizophrenic, gentlemen. It's the tragedy of living in two ages. The new age has dawned on you, if you're a believer, and you have eternal life in you, and you have the Holy Spirit in you, and you also have this dying body, and you have this spiritual principle called flesh still in the members of your being, still harassing you. And you can put it into retreat, but you can't kill it yet. That's your problem. And if you try to live your Christian life out of this corpus of being, you're not going to make it because there's too much warfare going on in there. You've got to have alien power. So this leads Paul then to say, he shows that his frustration leads to despair in verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am. And I say that about myself. I said it a moment ago. I am a wretch. And there's a sense in which if I just take myself as myself, just right here, no alien power, no help from God, just having been, well, help from God, but not continuing help, just being regenerated and being forgiven, and I try to live the Christian life this way, I just despair. I quit. I just can't do this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Tarzan! That's what he's saying. I, 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 the harder I try, the more I'm sinking when I use this old way. So who's going to help me? And then look at verse 25. Our despair leads us to the new way. Praise the Lord. And Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has delivered us. Tarzan has heard your voice. He is going to rescue you. There is a different way. And he's going to give you that way. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's by the power of his Holy Spirit. When you look to him and ask him for help, moment by moment, Lord, help me not to put those pornographic movies on my screen. Lord, help me. And the Holy Spirit comes with power and helps you. You've got to get outside even of your regenerate self. You're always a dependent child asking for help. That's the point here. Once you think you're a grown-up adult all on your own facing the world by yourself, you're cooked. Wretched man that I am. I need some help. Who's going to help me? Thank you, Jesus. So this is then Paul summarizes it in 25b when he says, so here's the summary. I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of God. And then you know how chapter 8 begins. But thanks be to God who delivers us. Uh, I'm sorry, that's, that's chapter uh, verse 25. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that introduces Romans 8. So the, it, what he's doing then in Romans 7 is to try to steer you away from your default, Judaistic, moralistic way of living the Christian life and trying to lead you to the new way of the Spirit, 
where you begin to look outside yourself and you, you don't cease to work hard in your Christian life, but you're doing it with the energy of God, the Holy Spirit. Paul says that I agonize in Colossians 1, 29. I agonize with all of the energy that He gives me. That's the new way. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn these things that we may live a holy and fruitful life. We long to be perfected. We long to see you face to face and to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what you've come to do. That's why you sent him, was to kill sin, to defeat death, to raise us from the grave gloriously and in a holy way, living life before you. We long for that. And in this day, we pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will lift us out of the sludge, enable us to fly with the wings of the Holy Spirit. Help us to renew our childlike trust in you today and to call again for your help and live by the new way of the Spirit in our following you. And we pray that during this Christmas season, we may especially say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.